Hi and welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alicia Buitis. I have a PhD in Chemistry and Polymer Science. In this podcast, we will be interviewing researchers from the material science and chemistry fields, and we will be discussing how their innovative ideas are uplifting and improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the conversation and that you learn something new. We are including this segment called the Educative Episode. We will be discussing various types of instruments for characterization and analysis in material science and chemistry in general. Today's topic is about electron microscopes. This will be part one of a series. In 1926, a man named Hans Busch relayed this idea of a focusing effect, where he used a symmetric magnetic field to focus electrons into a narrow beam, and he also established that this magnetic field can bend the path of the electrons. So it really all started with finding ways of manipulating electrons to then develop these tools we call electron microscopes. So for a long time before electron microscopes, we had the optical microscope. The first compound microscope were invented in 1590 and started to gain popularity in the 17th century as microorganisms were being discovered. Also referred to as a light microscope, it uses a system of lenses and visible light to generate magnified images of small objects. The maximum magnification is usually limited around a thousand times magnification due to the limited resolving power of visible light. This limitation also causes depth of field issues, where the image might appear blurry in one area of the sample and in focus in another area, which is caused by the variation in height of the sample. But the optical microscope is still to this day a very useful tool. Even still recently in 2014, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to Eric Betzig, Stephen Hell and William Moerner. They found an innovative way of overcoming some of the issues of the optical microscope and turned it into a nanoscope. In their words, they said, light microscopy is very important to life science because the use of focused light is the only way to see magnifications of living things. Even though the electron microscope can help us envision objects smaller than 200 nanometers, the high vacuum and high energy electron beam can destroy the living samples. Betsy and his team found a specific protein that they were able to label with a fluorescent and then bombard the sample with a laser pulse repeatedly to gain a coherent image of the living sample. However, some research still requires electron microscopy for analysis and characterization. In electron microscopy, we use electrons instead of light to see our images. The electrons interact with the electrons in the sample, which produces various signals that can be detected and contain information about the sample surface topography and composition. For scanning electron microscopy, the electron beam is generally scanned in a roster scan pattern. And the beam's position is combined with the detector signal to produce an image. Scanning electron microscopy can achieve a resolution under one nanometer, which is great to see in detail on a very small section of your sample. The compartments of a scanning electron microscope consist of an electron source, a condenser lens, and apertures, stigmators, and a specimen chamber. The electron microscope usually functions under a high vacuum. This is to prevent the electron beam from becoming scattered or colliding with other molecules. 
For our electron source, which we call an electron gun, this is where the electron beam gets generated, we have two types of sources. One is the thermal emission gun, and the other is the field emission gun. For thermal emission guns, tungsten filament can be used, which can be operated at lower vacuum. This have a shorter life, however, and lower electron emissions are inadequate if you want high-resolution SEM. Lanthanum hexaboride filaments are another type of filament used in thermal emission guns. They are better for higher resolution and have a longer life. It does cost more and a higher vacuum is required. Field emission guns have two types of setups. You can get cold field emission, which have a sharp single crystal tip mounted on a hairpin filament. A strong electromagnetic field is then applied to induce electron tunneling through the barrier of the gun in ambient temperatures. The advantages of cold field emission gun is cool emission and much narrow beam width with longer filament life, but a high vacuum is required to keep this filament clean. Next, under the field emission gun section, we have the second type of filament, which is a shot key emission, which has a similar setup to cold field emission, but the tip is coated in zirconium dioxide. The shot key emission have a higher electron source stability and low beam noise with much higher electron yields compared to the cold field emission. Electron beam manipulation is achieved by using electromagnetic lenses and coils, which is located in the microscope column. These installations are crucial to controlling the size, shape and position of the electron beam on the sample surface. The electromagnetic lenses are utilized by passing electric currents through the copper wires to induce a magnetic field. The condenser lens controls the spot size and this is done by converging the cone of the electron beam to a spot below it before the cone flares out again and is converged back by the objective lens and down onto the sample. So the condenser lens essentially gathers the electrons of the first crossover image and then helps us to see the area of the specimen that is being examined. The condenser helps reduce spherical aberration uh, and spherical aberration is where a spherical lens causes many focal points to occur due to a scattered beam, which will lead to a blurry image. Next for SEM, we have the roster coils. Beam scanning can occur in both X and Y direction due to the beam passing through two sets of the magnetic scanning coils. Magnification of an area is controlled by modulating scanned areas. The smaller the viewed area on your sample, the higher the magnification would be. We've already quickly mentioned the objective lens, but just to add a little bit more, the objective lens focuses the beam into a spot on the sample which is necessary to have the image in proper focus. Once the primary electron beam have interacted with your sample, you will receive multiple types of signals that may be detected. We have backscattering electrons, secondary electrons, X-rays, algorithm electrons, and cathode luminescence. Cathode luminescence is used to analyze the resulting photons emitted in the ultraviolet to near-infrared regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. So for all these types of resulting signals, we will require various types of detectors. First, we will look at secondary electrons and backscattering electron detectors. So the secondary electron detector magnetically attracts the secondary electrons by using a low positive voltage, which is applied to a ring around the detector. The secondary electrons are accelerated to an area called a scintillator after entering the ring. 
Once the secondary electrons hit this area, it will emit photons. These photons travel to a photon multiplier, which eventually leads to the formation of an image, which we can view digitally on a screen. Secondary electrons are formed after the primary electron beam comes into the sample and hits other electrons belonging to the specimen. The electrons in the sample then get ejected and is called secondary electrons. These electrons mainly give topographical information since the electrons are ejected from the surface of the sample. The higher the energy of the electron beam, the deeper the electrons will penetrate into your sample. This is also influenced by your sample type. Electrons that come from the beam cause the secondary electrons to be ejected, and the void that is formed by the missing electrons causes other electrons in your sample to move in order to fill that void. This causes those electrons to give off an energy, and this energy we call X-rays. Backscattered electrons are formed when the electrons from the beam comes into your sample and misses electrons. These primary beam electrons get slingshot by the nucleus of your sample's atom and becomes reflected back towards the beam. The speed that this reflected electron gets flung back to the beam is dependent on the number of photons and the size of the nucleus of the atoms in your sample. For the backscattering electron detector, we have a similar setup to the secondary electron detector but without the positive voltage applied. To maximize the detection of the backscattering electrons, the detector is positioned as close to the beam as possible. The backscattering imaging has a lower spatial resolution due to the longer electron escape length. As the backscattering electron's intensity is proportional to the mean atomic number of the atoms, the backscattering imaging provides information on the variation of the sample's composition. The higher the atomic number, the more positively charged the atomic nucleus is. So samples with elements lower on the periodic table with higher atomic numbers will be appearing brighter. Oftentimes in material science, for me personally, you may have two materials that appear exactly the same, but once you analyze the materials using the scanning electron microscope and the backscattering detector, you can define and identify the elements in your materials and establish the differences in chemical composition. You can even analyze the concentration of the various types of elements in your sample by using EDS, which is Energy Dispersive Spectroscopy. Every element has a characteristic X-ray. Some may be close to each other or overlap slightly, but these X-rays are mostly unique. In order to quantify the elements in your sample, you have to be very careful and very precise with calibrations and standardization steps. We will be discussing EDS in more detail later in this series. The next popular electron microscope is the transmission electron microscope. There are a few differences between the scanning electron microscope and the transmission electron microscope. But the main differences is that the electron beam is sent through the sample rather than scanning over the surface of the sample. Sample preparation will have its very own section in this electron microscope series. But it is important to mention that some of the other differences between SEM and TEM is the way the sample is mounted and prepared for analysis. Specimens for TEM are mostly ultra-thin sections, it's less than 100 nanometers, or it can be a suspension on a grid. For SEM, we use aluminium tape or carbon tape, which is adhesive, and we use this to mount our sample onto an aluminium stub. The first thing was demonstrated by Max Noll and Ernst Ruska in 1931. 
Ersteriska received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1986 for the development of the TEM. But it was Manfred van Arden that invented scanning roster quills in 1937. He further investigated the theory of SEM and later the idea of a scanning transmission electron microscope by placing the roster scanning coils into a transmission electron microscope. Transmission electron microscopy is able to capture fine detail even as small as a single column of atoms. It is regarded as an essential tool for nanoscience in biological and material science fields. Scanning transmission electron microscope have the benefit of gaining more signals from the sample with electrons passing through and as well as scanning over the sample. This gives us topographical as well as ultra-structural information of the specimen, which includes the orientation, crystal structure and other contrasted information caused by chemical composition of the sample. There are many other ways today that we can utilize SIM. An environmental scanning electron microscope was developed originally by Gerasimos Danilatos. This type of SEM allows the option of collecting electron micrographs of specimens that are wet and uncoated by using a gaseous environment in the microscope chamber instead of a vacuum. It is also possible to construct 3D models using SEM where you can image sections of your sample and combine them into a full structure using 3D modeling. This is usually done with a 3D modeling software and we will be speaking about this in more detail with Jürgen Krill from the Central Analytical Facility from Stellenbosch University later on. Electron microscopy is such a useful and innovative tool and not just for material science and chemistry but also for other fields such as geology, forestry, microbiology, biology and even medicine. Please keep a lookout for the next parts of this series of electron microscopy. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please feel free to share it and subscribe. You can send any comments and questions to polymerSciencePodcast at gmail.com. This will also be linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening.